Rich took off, but I wanted to tell him I've been living in Psalm 13 this whole summer. But my version says, how long, O God, till this fog burns away and the sun comes out? Anyway, today we're in Matthew 8, 18 through 34. That is our passage for today, for Adam's message. Matthew 8, 18 through 34. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he had gotten to the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you come to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into that herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen, the herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. I heard the story of a teenage boy who went to his father and he wanted to begin bodybuilding so that he'd become huge and buff like me. And that's not funny. So the father brought his son to the store to look at some exercise equipment and pointing out a set of weights, the son said to him, please, Dad, please, Dad, these right here. I promise I'll use them every day. And the father kind of looked at the weights and looked at his son and he said, I don't know. I mean, it's a huge commitment on your part and these weights, they're not cheap. And the son said, please, Dad, please, I want to build muscles. I'll use them. You'll see. So finally, the father relented, and he went and he paid for the equipment at the register, and he headed to the door. But after taking only a few steps, he heard a voice behind him, his son saying, what? You mean I have to carry them all the way to the car? You know, we laugh, but the truth is we're a lot like this son. And we're a lot like the men that Jesus encountered at the beginning of today's account. Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. I really want to do it. You'll see. 
And Jesus says, I don't know. I don't know if it's a huge commitment on your part and the weight is heavy and my way is not cheap. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Friends, we all want the crown, but are we ready for the commitment? We all want the gain, but are we willing to endure the pain? We all want the accolade, but will we submit to Jesus' authority? Because, friends, Jesus is not seeking decisions. Jesus has come to make disciples. Jesus has not come just to make an easy decision. He has come for disciples who will follow Him. Following Jesus is not a casual commitment. You need to completely and absolutely submit yourself to His authority. So Jesus responds to the first man in this account. And he says, hey, listen, following me, it's not comfortable. There's no certainty. There's no security. Jesus says, listen, I'm not some rock star preacher and my followers aren't just going to ride my coattails into fame and fortune. Followers of Jesus aren't even promised a place to lay their head. He warns, he says, following me is going to cost you. The weight is heavy. And you will have to bear it the whole way. So will you still follow? And the second man that we meet in this passage comes to Jesus just as excited as the first. Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. Really, I want to do it. I'll go. You'll see. But like the first man, there's a problem. This man has a caveat. We hear in verse 21 says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, that on its face doesn't sound like an unreasonable request, does it? In that culture, in fact, it was really not just unreasonable. It was I mean, not unreasonable. It was expected. You see, in that culture, burying your parents was considered more important than studying the law, than serving in the temple, or even killing the Passover sacrifice. So to not bury your parents was utterly scandalous. It was the most basic of familial obligations. So on its face, this man's request sounds very, very reasonable. Except, you need to understand that there's no indication that this man's father was anywhere near death. There's no indication that this man's father was sick or even elderly. So Jesus sees through what this man is doing. Friends, this isn't a request. This is an excuse. He's making excuses. Oh, I'd follow you, Jesus. I'd be right there the whole way. Oh, yeah, the whole way. But first, before I do, I've got a few things to take care of. And friends, isn't that what we do? I'd follow Jesus, but I'll follow Jesus once this happens. I'll obey Jesus once that occurs. I'll speak more boldly, give more regularly and more generously. I'll confess more honestly. I'll seek God daily. I'll pray more fervently. I'll obey more readily once this happens. Friends, you're either going to spend your life making excuses or you're going to spend your life making it happen. And this man is making excuses. Friends, what are your go-to excuses? What were the excuses that you're right now relying on not to fully obey and follow Jesus? Because Jesus says to this man, and he says to us, he says, be done with your excuses. Verse 22, follow me, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Leave the spiritually dead to bury the physically dead. 
Jesus says, the time is short. There is nothing more important than following me. So be done with your empty promises, your empty posturing, your empty excuses, and follow me here, now, and today. That call is not just for that man there. It's for you and for me. And how will you respond? You know, one of the things that stands out to me as I read these accounts is that Jesus interacts with these men in the exact opposite of the way that you and I interact with people. I mean, if someone comes to us and expresses even the slightest little amount of interest in Jesus, we jump on them. We're like, whoa, whatever it takes. You only want to come and worship two Sundays a month. That's great. Instead of a 10% tithe, how about a 7.5%? Yeah? You know, you don't want to spend any time outside of Sunday morning seeking Jesus for yourself. You just want us to spoon feed you when you come on Sunday. That's fine with us. Friends, Jesus never lowered the bar the way we do. Jesus says, no. No, if you're going to follow me, there's no compromise. There's no lowering the bar. He, he never diminished the cost. He never hid the cross. Jesus' authority is absolute. Church, how are we guilty? How are we guilty of settling for good enough or bare minimum Christianity in our own lives? Are you simply a decision for Jesus? Or are you a disciple, a follower of Jesus? And church, are we making decisions? Or are we making disciples, followers who count the cost and follow fully and submit fully to his authority? And you might ask, well, why? Why is absolute commitment to Jesus necessary if we're going to follow him? Friends, absolute commitment to Jesus is necessary because Jesus is an absolute authority. He is an absolute authority. Did you notice the title that he applied to himself? In chapter 8, verse 20, he says, I'm the Son of Man. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The Son of Man. Now, this is Jesus' first usage of this title for himself in Matthew's Gospel. However, we're going to now hear Jesus use this title for himself 29 times. In Matthew's Gospel. In fact, if you go across all four of the Gospels, over 80 times Jesus uses the title Son of Man to apply to himself. It is his favorite self-designation. And what is the significance of this title, Son of Man? The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I am the Son of Man. Now, now the title's vague enough that we might hear Son of Man, and some of those hearing him might have heard Son of Man and just interpreted it as human man. But for those who were on top of things, for those who understood, they understood that he was referring to himself as the Son of Man as revealed in the book of Daniel. We studied the book of Daniel, I think, last year. And in it, we heard an amazing passage in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. And it goes like this. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, to God himself, and this son of man was presented before him. And to him, the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And here comes Jesus saying, Son of man, that's me. I am the Son of Man. And friends, in fact, when Jesus declared Himself to be the Son of Man, we're going to see when we get to the end of Matthew, He's standing before the high priest in Matthew 26, and He declares Himself to be the Son of Man. And the high priest tears His garments and cries blasphemy. Because he recognizes that Jesus is saying, I am that Son of Man. I am the Son of Man. The one in Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man who's come to receive an eternal kingdom. The Son of Man who will ride on the clouds. The Son of Man who will sit at the right hand of the Ancient of Days of God Himself. He's claiming for Himself the title of Son of Man. He's saying, I am the ultimate authority. And friends, as the Son of Man, As the ultimate authority, he must be ultimately followed and completely obeyed. And Jesus says there's no compromising it. I am the Son of Man. I mean, remember at the end, when we finished studying the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of chapter 7, what was the reaction of the crowds? They said, no man has ever taught with authority like this. Last week, we saw Jesus encountering sickness after sickness, and no sickness could stand against his authority. And now we hear Jesus declare to these would-be followers, he goes, if you're going to follow me, you need to follow my authority completely and totally on my terms, not on yours. Matthew is just putting on display for us the utter and absolute authority of Jesus Christ, and he's inviting us to respond. How do you respond to the authority of Jesus Christ? The next two episodes that Kevin read for us reveal again the authority that Jesus has over the natural world and the authority that Jesus has over the supernatural world. First, we see Jesus' authority over the natural world as they cross the lake. Now, this this tale is of a fateful trip that started from a Galilean port aboard a tiny ship. And the mates, they were mighty sailing men. They were fishermen, brave and sure. And the passengers had set sail that day for a Translake tour. Now, none of them was named Gilligan. But we find, yeah, thank, thank you all for chuckling at that. I appreciate that. So it makes me feel good. So we find that Jesus and his disciples were crossing the Sea of Galilee and the weather did start getting rough and the tiny ship was tossed. The Sea of Galilee is about 680 feet below sea level. And because of where it's positioned and the way it's positioned, winds can come up suddenly from the surrounding hills so that what can be a peaceful lake at one minute can turn turbulent the next minute. And this is probably what happened. But friends, this must have been an especially furious storm because remember, the majority of Jesus' disciples were fishermen by trade. They spent plenty of time out on the water. And they were terrified. These hardened fishermen were terrified. But what about Jesus? He's asleep. He's sound asleep. As the storm rages around him, the people around him are terrified. Jesus is asleep. And friends, the original hearers of this story would have immediately thought of another man who slept in the middle of a storm while everybody around him was terrified. The prophet Jonah. 
The prophet Jonah was also upon a boat in the midst of a terrible storm. And as the sailors, the weathered sailors around him, tried to struggle and were fearful, they finally woke up Jonah and what they have to do, they had to throw Jonah into the sea to stop the storm. But here, Jesus, in the middle of the storm, surrounded by terrified people, they wake him and he doesn't need to be thrown into the sea. He simply speaks. And all is calm. Friends, the wind and the waves know His voice. The wind and the waves know the voice of Jesus because it's the same voice that spoke them into being at the creation. And just like a frightened animal responds to its owner, just like a wailing child responds to the soothing voice of her mother, the wind and the waves respond to the voice of Jesus and submit to His authority. And all is calm. And recalling the story of Jonah, the original hearers of this account would have understood that someone greater than Jonah is here. A prophet greater. In fact, we're going to see just a few chapters later in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says in chapter 12, verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is a prophet with authority greater than Jonah or greater than any other prophet. Something greater. Jesus says, hey, if the person's repented at the authority of Jonah's preaching, then how should we respond to the authority of Jesus' words? If at the authority of Jesus' words, the wind and the waves submitted to His authority, friends, how should we today respond to that same voice and to those same words? How should we respond to the authority of Jesus Christ? In verse 26, Jesus asks, He says, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? One who has authority greater than the prophets have come. One who has authority over all the created order has come. One who can speak a word and calm the storm has come. So church, why are we afraid? Why are you afraid? Verse 27, it says that the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this? That even the winds and the waves obey him. And friends, every single person who has ever walked the earth has to answer that question. That is the deciding question. Who is this Jesus? What is this authority that he has? And most importantly, how will I respond to that authority? Friends, how will you answer that question? Jesus demonstrates His authority over all of the natural material world. Everything which can be seen, heard, touched, tasted, smelled, measured, weighed, examined. He's authoritative over it all. But not just the natural world. We find in verses 28 through 34 that Jesus is also authoritative over the supernatural world. Now, to our modern ears, we start talking about the supernatural and it seems a little primitive. Maybe the relic of a bygone era before science helped us to understand these things. In fact, we might even be a little embarrassed or feel a little foolish looking at a passage like this one today 
Because really, aren't we modern people? I mean, haven't we outgrown the need for ideas about unseen realities and spirits? Isn't there a perfectly good and reasonable and natural explanation for everything that happens here? However, friends, the truth is, when we look at what happens in this account, and when we read the whole of Scripture, we find that the supernatural world, friends, is just as real as the natural world. Supernatural means to be beyond. It is beyond nature. It's beyond the material. It's beyond our natural senses. It's beyond the reach of science. But just because it's unseen and immaterial does not mean it's unreal. The supernatural is just as real as the natural. And the demons that Jesus confronts in this account are very real. And the point that we're supposed to walk away with is that Jesus has the authority. Friends, he has the authority over both the natural and the supernatural. Over everything material and all that is immaterial. Jesus and his disciples arrive on the other side of the lake and they're now in Gentile territory. And they're greeted by the welcome wagon. Two raving mad, demon-possessed men. Now, a brief aside at this point. A brief aside because if you read this exact same account, which is also recorded in Mark and in Luke's Gospel, you're going to immediately notice that both Mark and Luke only mention one demon-possessed man. And Matthew here says, nope, there were two. And some people will immediately pounce on facts like this, and they'll go, up. Oh, see, that's because the Gospels are really all just made up anyway. You know, they're all just the creation, and, and they, they didn't get any of the details right. And friends, this is not a case of someone getting it wrong. The fact is, what we have here is these are all short accounts. And as such, these three accounts nat- naturally omit more information than they include. Whenever a reporter approaches a story, that reporter has to choose which details to include in the story and which ones not to include in the story. What are they trying to emphasize? And we notice that Matthew, he ended his account with the pig farmers fleeing and all the people coming out to speak to Jesus. But did you notice there's absolutely no mention of the demon-possessed man? They like to the story because that wasn't what Matthew was focusing on. On the other hand, both Mark and Luke, if you read their accounts, they both mention that one of the demoniac men chose to follow Jesus. And they want to emphasize that. They want to make sure everybody knows that one of these men chose to follow Jesus. And that's where their accounts end. So what's likely happening here is that Matthew wanted to emphasize for us Jesus' utter power over the supernatural. And so he says, no, there wasn't just one. There were two men. There were two men there, and he drove the demons out of both of them. And then he wants to emphasize the response of the crowds, not the response of these men. On the other hand, Mark and Luke, they're reporting the same story, but as reporters, they choose the details that are important to them and to focus on what they want to focus on, which is the response of the one man who responded to Jesus. And they pretty much ignore the second man who did not respond. You see, church, when there are apparent discrepancies in the gospel accounts, don't let anyone tell you that they're contradictions because they're complementary. They're not contradictions. They're complementary. The gospel reports don't contradict one another. They complement one another, and they give us a fuller and more complete picture of what actually happened that day. 
So Jesus and his disciples, as Matthew tells us, show up, they land. There's not one but two demon-possessed men who were living amongst the tombs that day. Now, people in that day were buried in natural caves or tombs that were cut out of limestone. And as such, this would have been a natural and an easy place for these men to shelter. And what they probably did is they were probably living off the food that superstitious people would bring and leave at the tombs to feed the dead. Now, you might ask, These demon-possessed men who were living amongst the tombs, living off this food, were they really demon-possessed, or was this just a case of mental illness? Interestingly, in 2016, the Washington Post ran a very controversial op-ed. And it says, as a psychiatrist, I diagnose mental illness. I also help spot demoniac, demonic possession. The author, Richard Gallagher, is a board-certified psychiatrist and a professor of clinical psychiatry at New York Medical College. And Dr. Gallagher wrote, For the past two and a half decades and over several hundred consultations, I have helped clergy from multiple denominations and faiths to filter episodes of mental illness, which represent the overwhelming majority of cases, from literally the devil's work. Careful observation of the evidence presented to me in my career has led me to believe that certain extremely uncommon cases can be explained no other way. Now, friends, then and now, I think cases of demon possession would be incredibly rare. But all I want to say to you is they are real. And what Jesus encounters in this account is a real example of a demon possession. Now, in our day, you're not likely to see a demon possession. But one thing that we are likely to see, friends, is not possession, but we're able to see and experience oppression. Spiritual oppression. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, chapter 6, verse 12, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Friends, possession might be rare, but we regularly in our world see the oppressive work of spiritual evil in this world. Friends, spiritual evil animates and perpetuates so many of the systemic abuses and evils we see today. Now, hear me correctly. Humans are ultimately responsible for their actions. The devil didn't make you do it. However, the spiritual blindness, the perpetuation of destructive ideologies, the perspective of destructive ideologies and philosophies is utterly demonic. You know, friends, atrocities, atrocities such as child sex trafficking, child pornography, celebrating the slaughter of the unborn in the womb, Promoting the mutilation of our sexually confused children? Rape? Genocide of entire peoples? Friends, those who've experienced or confronted or escaped from such things will tell you without hesitation there is real and spiritual evil in those things. There is real and spiritual evil perpetuating such things. There is a spiritual dimension to this battle. There is a supernatural And today we do not just wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against principalities and powers and rulers of this dark age. And so, church, we might ask, what is our hope? What is our hope against such darkness, against such evil, and against such forces in this world? Well, back to the account. Matthew mentions that the demons that had possessed these men were plural. Both Mark and Luke mentioned that the demon was actually asked its name, and the response was, Legion, for we are many. Now understand that a Roman legion was 6,000 troops. These men were probably not possessed with 6,000 spirits, but the point was, we are a powerful army to be faced. Friends, Jesus is outnumbered. But hear the gospel. Jesus is outnumbered, but he is not outmatched. Church, Jesus is outnumbered, but he is not outmatched. What is our hope? Jesus is outnumbered, but he is not outmatched. Jesus' church might be outnumbered, but church, we are not outmatched. Evil in this world might be legion, but we are not outmatched. Church, notice that as soon as Jesus arrives on the scene, evil immediately bows to its authority. There's no fight. There's no resistance. Friends, as soon as Jesus arrives, evil begins to negotiate the terms of its surrender. There's no standing against the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. And the demons beg to be cast into a nearby herd of pigs. And Jesus, with his authority, grants the request, drives the demons from these men into the herd. And pigs, who have no herd mentality at all, they, as a herd, stampede into the lake and they're destroyed. Now, as an aside, I know for some, these pigs might be, the destruction of them might be troublesome or it might be seen gratuitous. But a couple of things to remind you here. First, although animal life is important, human life is more important. Humanity is created in the image of God and is immensely and incalculably valuable. Secondly, it wasn't Jesus who destroyed the pigs. It was the demons because, friends, evil always destroys Evil cannot create. Evil always destroys. And so that's what we see it doing here. And finally, while it's not evident to us today, remember, they're in Gentile territory and something's happening here. In Leviticus 11, pigs are actually the most ceremonially unclean of animals. So what the original Jewish hearers would have seen and heard happening is not only were these men cleansed of the unclean spirits, but then the land was cleansed of the unclean animals. Again, a visual representation of the cleansing and driving away of all that is unclean because of the ultimate authority of Jesus. Friends, what is evident in this is the authority of Jesus over the supernatural. And church, that is good news for us. It is good news for us as we face evil in our lives and in this world. As Reformation theologian Martin Luther wrote in his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fell Him. So yes, the supernatural is real and it's powerful. 
However, as Luther celebrates, one little word shall fell him. And friends, we know that little word is no little word, but it's Jesus. The Word made flesh. He is authoritative over all powers, natural and supernatural. Jesus has come with authority. Authority over the supernatural. Authority over the natural. Authority over sickness. Authority over sin. He has come to teach us and to lead us with authority. He's the ultimate authority. The authority that can deliver. The authority that commands and we follow immediately and absolutely. Friends, there's no delay. And there's no excuses. We must, like creation, we, like these demons, we, like all the sicknesses that we've seen driven out, must submit immediately and completely to the authority of Jesus Christ. And you might imagine having witnessed this kind of power. Well, isn't that the result? Well, of course, you see that kind of power. You're going to submit to it, won't you? Won't you? Friends, the most tragic part is the last verses of this passage. The townspeople come out to meet Jesus, not to celebrate Him and thank Him, but to tell Him to get lost. Have you ever had a friend who said, well, if God would only show me a miracle, then I'd believe in Him? Maybe you're here waiting for your miracle. Friends, it's not true. These townspeople saw a bona fide miracle, undeniable authority and power, and they still won't yield. Because seeing miracles doesn't change anyone. The townspeople still won't submit. Friends, if you're holding out for a miracle, if you're holding out for a miracle before you'll believe, friends, miracles can't create or compel faith. You need to choose. You need to choose. Now, when Mark records this story in his gospel, he makes clear that the reason why the people rejected them is the huge financial loss. They just lost a herd of pigs. And a large herd of pigs would have been a significant financial loss. It affected their bottom line. And friends, Jesus has already told us, yeah, follow me, it's going to affect your bottom line. He's already said, if you follow me, I have no place to lay my head and neither will you. This isn't the path of comfort. This isn't the path of acclaim. This is the path of suffering. It's going to cost you everything. And so these accounts, church, all lead us to the same place. What will you do with the authority of Jesus? He has come and taught us with authority. Sickness obeys His authority. The natural and supernatural word, world obey His authority. But how will you respond to His authority? Will you respond as did his disciples? Or will you respond as did the townspeople? Will you submit? Or will you send away? And church, church, witnessing again and being reminded of Christ's great authority, hear again his question to his disciples. Where's your faith? Why are you afraid? Church, why do we fear? We may be outnumbered, but with Christ, we are never outmatched. So where is He calling you? Where is He calling us? How now will we follow Him? Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for this reminder of the authority of Jesus Christ. 
Father, help us to submit utterly, completely, without excuses and without delay to His authority. Help us to follow wholly, completely, without hesitation. And Lord, lead us. Lead us to You. In Jesus' name, Amen. In closing.